buried treasure. We've all heard tales of stolen riches buried by thieves and cutthroats, killers who made off with their loot only to hide it away for a later time. Whenever most think of buried treasure, however, they think of pirates who sailed the seven seas. Missouri is, of course, nowhere near an ocean, but that doesn't stop us from having our own tales of buried treasure. While there were certainly small pirate crews along the Mississippi and Missouri rivers, there were also bandits and bushwhackers, bank robbers and highwaymen, along with thieves, miners, and conquistadors who found themselves in distress throughout the state, and all of them have tales about their ill-gotten gains being buried. In this episode, we're going to examine some of the most interesting myths and legends that surround just a few of these treasures. Join us as we discuss treasures that may be buried away and hidden in the show me. In 1802, the fur trade had reached far past Missouri and into the Rockies, but civilization had not breached that far yet. For trading companies, St. Louis would often provide them with a base of operations. After all, the city had been founded by Auguste Choteau and Pierre Laclede, two fur traders, in 1764. Fur trading was a dangerous business. In addition to having to live off the land, there were hostile Native American tribes that had to be avoided or negotiated with. It also has to be stated that fur trading was very much a job, and it was one that was done for pay. It would be the method of paying fur traders that lead to the first tale of buried treasure. In the first half of October, four French employees of a St. Louis fur trading company filled a copper kettle with gold coins that would be taken up the Missouri River to various trading posts further upstream so that they could pay trappers for the furs that had been collected and harvested. As the men rowed their boat upstream, they kept an eye out for attack from the Native Americans in the region, but as the days passed without so much as a sighting, the Frenchmen grew complacent, and with their vigilance down, they opened themselves to disaster. As the fifth day of their journey neared an end, the Frenchmen began scouting the low bluffs along the river for a suitable place to make camp for the night. 
Suddenly, a war cry broke the still silence of the riverbanks, and the four fur traders spotted a swarm of Native Americans on the farthest bank of the river. Flaming arrows hurled in their direction, and the natives quickly loaded into canoes to pursue the French intruders. Fear overcame the Frenchmen, and they pulled in on the south shore, grabbed the kettle of gold coins and their weapons, and quickly made haste for a small bluff about 60 yards in to make a stand against their enemies. Stacking rocks, fallen branches, and logs together, the men constructed a makeshift shelter just as the first of the pursuing natives made it to the riverbank. The Native Americans charged towards the Frenchmen, who opened fire with their muzzle loaders, dropping a few of the horde in the process and seeing the others scatter. The natives broke into smaller camps around the shelter of the Frenchmen, preventing them from escape, and made themselves warm by numerous campfires, something that the fur traders dared not risk to do. As the Frenchmen shivered throughout that cold October night, they worried. They dreaded dawn. They knew that as light approached, they would be attacked once more. The occasional arrow fired at them from the dark served as a constant reminder of the threat that lay in wait. As the sun finally rose, the men found themselves in the midst of an early snowstorm, one that fell fast and hard and kept the Native Americans near their campfires for warmth. Shivering and freezing, shook by the occasional arrow, the Frenchmen found themselves lacking food and water. The Native Americans could easily wait them out. For four days, the Frenchmen huddled in their makeshift shelter, but they could wait no longer. They had to make a break for their boat if there was to be any chance of survival. But what to do with their kettle of gold coins? They couldn't run with it, it would only slow them down. So they buried it and planned to return with a larger force at a later date to reclaim their employer's wealth. Night fell, and the Frenchmen waited for the Native Americans to fall asleep. When they felt that sufficient time had passed, they began to sneak towards their boat, trying to remain as stealthy as possible. They had made it halfway to their boat, and their plan seemed to be working, but then they were spotted by a scout. The natives quickly awoke and attacked. The Frenchmen fired their rifles at the closest of the attackers, killing two of them and making a mad dash for their boat. Arrows pelted the fur traders, killing three of them. The fourth was hit, and although heavily wounded, managed to get to the boat, launch it into the river, and laid on the floor, exhausted, injured, completely terrified. He floated downriver, scared of the pursuit, and without the energy to put up any more of a fight, he couldn't keep himself from passing out. The Native Americans that had attacked his party, kept him trapped for days, and killed his companions, never chased after the injured survivor, likely mistaking him for dead. He still lived, just barely, but he lived, and his boat was pulled to the banks of the river near St. Louis, where he was taken and given medical care. After regaining consciousness, he told his tale, along with a description of where the kettle of gold coins had been buried. For some reason, however, there wasn't an attempt made to reclaim the coins. Over three decades later, a large group of French fur trappers departed St. Louis for the Rockies. Traveling in larger numbers brought safety, and some of the Frenchmen discussed the 33-year-old story of the buried kettle. They made camp one night, 
reflected on the story and felt that with a bit of luck, they could find the gold coins and keep them for themselves. But the river had changed its course over the decades, being redirected by a previous flood. After weeks, their search proved fruitless, and they departed empty-handed. For roughly another 100 years, the story of the copper kettle of gold coins would remain just that, a story. But in the 1930s, a group of construction workers prepared a site for a home's foundation when they discovered a skeleton and a copper disc with a French flag engraved on it. Researching this disc, they discovered that these were carried by representatives of certain French fur trading companies. They had a clue, and the location was right, near where the Grand met the Missouri. About 10 years later, a local farmer discovered a 1796 gold French coin while plowing his field. He had showed it to numerous people in the area who recalled the story of the buried kettle, and the farmer went back to try to find it, but he was unsuccessful, and so has everyone who has looked for the treasure since. It remains hidden in a field near a bluff along the Missouri River to this day. Buried treasures are not limited to waterways, and an excellent example of this can be seen in a legend from southern Missouri. Stone County is said to be the home of a cave that contains silver and gold hidden from the time of the conquistadors. According to legend, in the 1500s, a commander under DeSoto was said to be leading a transport of wealth from Texas to the Mississippi River, where it would be sent downriver, loaded onto a ship, and sent back to Spain. As the Spaniards made their way through the Ozark Mountains, they searched for ore, and during an extended camp in the area, they found a vein of silver inside a cave in what would become southwestern Missouri. After construction of a log fort, the conquistadors began their mining operation. The mining went well for the Spanish, but they had to remain on constant alert as Native Americans would occasionally attack the fort, and these attacks began to become more frequent. The hostility between the Spanish and the Native Americans grew to a fever pitch, and the Spanish knew that they were at a severe disadvantage in both numbers and that their enemy had the home field advantage. They buried their gold and silver in the cave, and then hightailed it out of the area, planning to return for their riches in a later time. From here, the story of the hidden Spanish fortune would vanish, only to re-emerge over 350 years later, in 1888. An elderly Spaniard arrived in Joplin and sought employment, which he found mopping up at a local saloon. Shortly after his arrival, he became sick with tuberculosis and was taken in by two of the men in town. They kept him warm, fed him, and sent for a doctor who informed them that the man did not have long to live. He told the men that he wanted them to take all of his possessions as gratitude for their help. When they awoke in the morning, the Spaniard had passed away. As the two Joplin men went through the man's belongings, they found an old map, annotated in Spanish with legends and notes. The men from Joplin assumed that the map had brought the Spaniard to the area, believing that he came to find the treasure cave mentioned on the map. 
The men from Joplin became interested in the map themselves, and over the next two years, they spent all their free time trying to find the cave, but could not. The map had stated that the entrance was concealed, and apparently it was concealed incredibly well. Becoming convinced that the map was a hoax that had fooled both of them and the elderly Spaniard, they would give the map to a newspaper in Webb City, which would print it shortly afterwards. The newspaper's printing of the map caught the eye of a former gold prospector from the Russian 49 named J.J. Mies, who along with H.R. Brewer would spend years combing Stone County for landmarks mentioned on the map. Finally, in 1894, they found three trees with faded crescent markings, as well as fallen logs, which they believed to be the site of the old Spanish fort. Following the length of the bluff near the supposed fort, they could find no entrance or sign of the cave on the map. Frustrated, but unwilling to accept defeat, Mies and Brewer sought help from the local community and some men from the area, such as H.R. Bruffett, joined in the search. Bruffett had grown bored and began digging in the dirt at the base of the bluff, discovering a copper bowl in the process. He showed the bowl to Mies and Brewer, and they noticed Spanish engravings on the bowl. They returned to where Bruffett had dug it up and continued to dig into the dirt at that spot. What they found was incredible. It was a buried stone slab that featured engravings matching the old Spanish map. They broke through the slab that they had been walking over all this time, concealing the entrance through the moving of large amounts of dirt by the conquistadors, and now the cave had been found. Bursting through the stone slab, the men lowered themselves into the cave and found three skeletons, along with parts of worked metal that Mies and company figured had to have been parts of Spanish armor. They also found a porcelain mold that held traces of silver, as if it had been used to cast the precious metal into ingots. Purchasing the land from an area railroad, the men continued with their search when they were approached by another man from out of town, another Spaniard who offered to buy the land from the men for far more than they had purchased it for. He was turned down. Days later, Mies and Brewer met with a Spaniard and they became quite friendly with each other. They discovered that the reason for the Spaniard's arrival was because he owned an ancient map as well. Not quite the same, but featuring many of the elements found on the original map. Further offers were made and once again turned down, ultimately seeing the Spaniard leave the area empty-handed. The maps had made mention of 14 chambers in the cave, with the 14th bearing the resting place of the treasure. As the group made their way through the cave, they went from chamber to chamber, finally reaching the 11th, then the 12th, and the 13th, and then a cave-in that had occurred in the past blocked their path and was too formidable of an opponent for the group. They returned to the surface disappointed and dejected. The son of Mies, Frank, would not give up so easily and began running electricity into the cave many years later, hoping that lighting and power would provide an easier time in removing the blockage from the cave-in. Before Frank could begin clearing the rubble that separated the 13th and 14th chamber, however, another cave-in would occur, seeing only the first three chambers of the cave system able to be now accessed. Finding the gold and silver of the Spanish being now impossible to reach, 
Frank refused to give in. He just decided to find his fortune through another method and began offering tours of the Lost Spanish Treasure Cave, eventually expanding his successful operation to include a gas station and a hotel. While Frank was able to find treasure from this cave through other means, the original treasure that led his father, as well as others to the cave, would never be found. Not all treasures in Missouri remain hidden, and not all were hidden by white travelers or settlers in the region. In 1906, a buried treasure of sorts would be found outside of Malden, Missouri while a farmer was plowing his field. Plowing deeper than normal, Ray Grooms would catch a glint in his eye and inspect the soil to see what had caught the light of the sun. What he found was a worked copper plate that featured a Native American figure that was part man part bird, and now identified as Morningstar, a deity from the Mississippian era. In addition to this plate were seven more, all of them buried next to each other, buried so tightly that little dirt had worked its way in between them, indicating that they had been buried together and in a rush. When these plates were found, some historians of the day believe that they had come from Mexico, believing that the Native Americans in the United States couldn't have crafted such intricate designs or worked the metal. Of course, we know better now, and a copper workshop of the era, the only one believed to have existed in North America at the time, lay across the river from modern St. Louis in the ancient city of Cahokia, providing a point of origin for the plates found by grooms. Further plates would later be discovered in Oklahoma, Alabama, Arkansas, Illinois, and even Florida, showcasing just how far these pieces of Native American artwork and culture traveled. And they also provided historians with a glimpse into the southern ceremonial complex of Mississippian culture. But does this just being buried qualify as being buried treasure? In the case of the Malden plates, the argument is certainly yes. The location of their discovery was not in a location that showed evidence of a Mississippian settlement. So why bury the plates there? Also, it must be remembered that the eight plates were buried tightly together, as if done so in a rush and by someone expecting to reclaim them later. The Mississippians held vast trade networks, and these plates are of a definite religious nature, so it remains well within the realm of possibility that they were buried quickly by either Cahokian traders or missionaries who were hiding from members of an enemy tribe, ambushers, thieves, or some other perceived threat to their safety. For one reason or another, these Cahokians were never able to reclaim their plates, and they would remain undiscovered for hundreds of years.
To cover the buried treasures in Missouri is no small task, and these are but just a few of the innumerable tales that our state has to offer. There are so many of these stories that we can't fit them all into one episode, so this topic will be visited again sporadically going forward. It is worth noting that locations and identifying information has been left vague purposely, as the locations for these treasures are on private property. There is also the problem of historical fact and myth blurring together and seeing myth overshadow fact in many cases. An example of this can be seen in the tale of the lost Spanish treasure cave, where the maps were dated 1522, 17 years before De Soto began his expedition in North America, and at a time when he was working with other conquistadors in southern portions of Central America. De Soto's death in Arkansas during the expedition also detracts from his possible involvement in the story that the myth paints. We also run into other tales concerning treasure, such as that of the stolen loot of Alf Bolin, that have such a story as to deserve their own episode. Regardless of where the treasure came from, who buried it, and how much of the story is myth or fact, these tales of buried treasure reach into our past and provide us with lore surrounding the history of our state. These buried treasures and the tales and legends that they inspire are a part of The Show Me. Show Me Podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, then please leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever service you listen with. Contact us at theshowmepodcast.com. Find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or leave us a voicemail at 573-203-8668. This presentation is copyright 2019 the Show Me Podcast. No part of this program may be duplicated or reproduced without the written consent of the Show Me Podcast. Music in this program is Creative Commons Media and is the property of the respective creating entity. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of the Show Me. I'm from Missouri. Missouri, show me. I am from Missouri. You have got.